Welcome back to Jesus on Every Page, a podcast to help you discover and enjoy Christ in the Old Testament. Each podcast I'll answer your questions about the Old Testament, point you to great books and blogs, highlight the best Old Testament sermons and lectures, and walk you through an Old Testament passage to demonstrate how to find and enjoy Jesus in the Old Testament. Thanks so much for all your feedback to last week's first podcast. In answer to your question, yes, the podcast will be available on iTunes as soon as they approve the feed that's been submitted. That could be a couple of weeks yet. In the meantime, you can subscribe to the blog by email to ensure that you don't miss an episode. And you can find my blog at headhearthand.org headhearthand.org Dot org. In answer to another question, yes, I will probably make commentary recommendations a regular feature because I want to talk about what you want me to talk about. So send in your comments, your questions, and so on. You can email me at jesusoneverypage at gmail.com. You can tweet me a question at David P. Murray. You can leave a comment at the blog. Or leave me a voice message on the podcast homepage. Just click send voicemail and record a quick question and I'll broadcast and answer that next week. But first of all, here's my quote of the week. It's Vern Poitras explaining the role of the Old Testament sacrifices in the lives of Old Testament believers. He says, As they looked ahead through the shadows, longing for something better, They took hold on the promises of God that he would send the Messiah. In pictorial form in these sacrifices, God was saying, as it were, Look at my provisions for you. This is how I redeem you and bring you to my presence. But look again, and you'll see that it's all an earthly symbol of something better. Don't rely on it as if it were the end. Trust me to save you fully when I accomplish my plans. Israelites had genuine communion with God when they responded to what he was saying in the tabernacle. They trusted in the Messiah without knowing all the details of how fulfillment would finally come. And so they were saved, and they received forgiveness, even before the Messiah came. The animal sacrifices in themselves did not bring forgiveness, but Christ did, as he met with them through the symbolism of the sacrifices. You'll get more great quotes on similar subjects in Vern Preuther's book, The Shadow of Christ in the Law of Moses. You'll find that quote on page 11. For my book of the week, I've chosen Close Encounters with the Son of God by Jonathan Stephen. This is a a book from Day One Publications about the Old Testament appearances of the Son of God. It's quite short, only 150-odd pages. It's simple, and it's revolutionized my own view of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Unfortunately, it's quite difficult to find new, but there are used copies out there which you'd do well to get a hold of. After I read this book, I felt as if I'd found some bonus Gospels, which revealed so many more encounters between our precious Saviour 
and needy sinners. I'm going to return to this subject shortly when we take a quick walk through Genesis 16. My lecture of the week this time is from O. Palmer Robertson. If you go to sermonaudio.com and search for O. Palmer, P-A-L-M-E-R, Robertson, you'll find a number of excellent lectures and sermons on the Old Testament there. In one of them, it's called Ears Digged, Body Prepared. Robertson looks at the quotation of Psalm 40, verse 6, My ears you have digged or bored, in Hebrews 10, verse 5, where it says, But a body you have prepared for me. Robertson says, It's supposed to be a quotation, and you don't even see anything that resembles what's in the Old Testament. This, he says, is perhaps the most radical departure of the New Testament from the text of the Old Testament. Robertson goes on to highlight three difficulties with the quotation and then asks, What are we going to do with all of these problems? Do you conclude that you cannot trust New Testament exegesis? That you cannot follow New Testament exegesis? That they were given liberty to use the Old Testament in ways that we can't? Robertson then sets out a pattern for understanding the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Now, it's a wee bit technical, it's a wee bit demanding in parts, but as Robertson himself concludes, this study helps you appreciate the genius of the New Testament interpretation of this passage. In other words, this turns what seems to be a negative, a weakness, into a strength, into a positive. The blog of the week is an article on Yancey Arrington's blog. It's entitled, How Were the Old Testament Saints Saved? He quotes Graham Goldsworthy in Gospel and Kingdom, which says, The Old Testament believer who believed the promises of God concerning the shadow was thus enabled to grasp the reality. It was by Christ that the saints of Israel were saved, for such is the unity of the successive stages of revelation, that by embracing the shadow, the believer embraced the reality. Only in this way can we account for the unity expressions of the New Testament, which speak of Old Testament believers as hearing the gospel, seeing Christ, or hoping for a heavenly kingdom. I'll put a link to that blog on the podcast notes on my blog page. Now, question of the week. This is one that comes up quite often. Where do you find Jesus in the book of Esther? Well, the short answer is, you can't. At least, you can't find Christ if you only take Esther on its own, as if it didn't exist as part of a larger book, the Old Testament. However, if we take the book as we were intended to, as part of a larger book, a very late part of a larger book, then the normal way to understand such a piece of literature would be to start with a larger story, especially where it began, which really was Genesis 3.15, where God promised that there would be ongoing hostility between his people and the devil's people, but that God would intervene 
to save his people by crushing their attacker. Now, as Esther was one of the last books of the Old Testament before Christ came, the devil had very little time left to exterminate Israel, from whom he knew Christ would come. The devil knew his Old Testament. This was, as it were, in Esther, his last gasp, his last throw of the dice to make the coming of the Messiah impossible. And what happens? God turns the devil's apparent success through Haman into the defeat of Haman and the devil, using the very instrument they thought would be used to exterminate the Jews and their leaders. Old Testament believers would therefore have read this story as a further fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 and a further pledge that God would indeed send the ultimate deliverer to beat their ultimate enemy. And perhaps even using the devil's strategy and instruments to be turned against him to defeat him. And that's exactly what's ha- what happened, isn't it, with the cross. And, and remember when we read Esther, it's the Son of God who is upholding all things by the word of his power. It's, it's the Son of God who's directing all these events for his own glory and the good of his people. We come now to the commentary recommendations. Again, I'll put some links to these underneath the podcast on my blog. This week, I'm going to consider Proverbs briefly. It's actually quite difficult to find Christocentric commentaries on Proverbs. There are some older ones which are helpful, like William Arnott, A-R-N-O-T, on the Proverbs. And there's also Charles Bridges on Proverbs. You can get that through the Banner of Truth. I think you can probably get fairly extensive sections of these commentaries online at Google Books and similar places. In terms of modern commentaries, I would highly recommend Dan Phillips, God's Wisdom and Proverbs. It's not so much a verse-by-verse commentary. deals with some very broad but vital themes. And to my mind, his treatment of the fear of the Lord is the best I've ever come across. Then there's Ray Ortland in a Crossway series of commentaries. It's called Wisdom That Works. Derek Kidner, always reliable, commentary on Proverbs. Gary Brady, Heavenly Wisdom, an EP commentary. And one of my favourites, although it's one of the briefest, if not the briefest, is Anthony Silvaggio, A Proverbs-Driven Life. And that's not just a good title, it's a good book. I like especially his treatment of Proverbs 8, where he argues that who is revealed there but the Son of God as God's wisdom. So, Let's turn now to an Old Testament passage and have a walk through it. And I'd like you to turn today to Genesis 16, this story of Hagar's casting out from Abraham and Sarah's home. But let me start with this question, just to frame this discussion. What was the Son of God doing in the Old Testament? 
He wasn't just watching the Father and Spirit work while he waited to come to earth. He was present and active throughout the Old Testament. At various points in Old Testament history, the Son of God appeared to needy sinners. These appearances are often called theophanies, God appearances, or Christophanies, Christ appearances. These are manifestations of the Son of God in human or symbolic form, by which he made himself and his will known to needy sinners. Now, the context for these appearances is almost always human sin or suffering. These are the occasions which they seem to draw the Son's attention and presence. And in Genesis 16, we certainly have a context of serious sin, which leads to painful suffering as well. Despite being given unambiguous divine promises, when Abraham was 75, ten years have passed, and Abraham and Sarah are growing impatient, pragmatic, and self-reliant. This leads to Abraham and Hagar's immorality, with Sarah, of course, a willing accomplice. That is until now, when pregnant Hagar starts mocking her mistress and treating her with contempt. Hagar's pride results in Sarah's abuse of her. Mistreated, Hagar gives in, gives up, and runs away in a turmoil of anger, pain, resentment, and frustration. She ends up in the desert, on the way back to Egypt, and stops at a well to take stock. What does she find? Well, here I am, in the wilderness, pregnant, unmarried, Egyptian, slave, outcast, unattractive, penniless, hopeless, godless, and probably dying. And it's in this dark context of sin and suffering that we read these bright words. Now the angel of the Lord found her. This is actually the first reference to the angel of the Lord in the Bible. And amazingly, who does he appear to but a Gentile, an Egyptian, a slave, an outcast, an immoral woman? What does that communicate but the great vision of God for his gospel reaching out with Israel. So, notice also um, a few general points before we look at this particular appearance of the angel of the Lord. And, and the first general point is this. The word angel here, and elsewhere where it occurs, the angel of the Lord, is not so much about the form of this person, but his function that's being emphasized. Often, you see, we hear angel and think, oh yeah, white wings, halo, flying around, and so on. We think of the form. But the word literally means messenger. That's what the Bible focuses on, his function, not his form. What he does, not so much what he is. The second general point is this messenger claims divine authority and yet sometimes speaks of God in the third person. So here and elsewhere he seems to be both 
identified with God, as in this chapter in verse 13, and yet somehow distinct from God. That should give us, again, some clue as to who he is. Third, um, he exhibits divine attributes. And, for example, here he seems to know everything about Hagar. He's also given divine titles. Hagar calls him God, for example, in verse 13. He performs divine functions. He accepts divine worship. If you take all the angel of the Lord passages, you'll see these things occurring again and again. And in this chapter, he speaks as God and promises what only God can promise in verses 10 through 12. So, when we try and put all this together, we, we conclude that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God in which he expresses his desire, his eagerness to draw near to sinners, to assure them of his interest, to bring messages of grace and to be with those he was to die for. As is so often in the, in the appearances of the angel of the Lord, he, he sometimes looks so ordinary that his identity and nature are somewhat obscured, at least for a while, and it usually only very slowly and lately dawns on the person he's dealing with. But let's come to this specific passage Notice, we're told that this angel did a number of things. First of all, he found Hagar in verse 7. While she had been running away, he had been seeking her. Secondly, he knows Hagar, verse 8. He says to her, Hagar, Sarah's handmaid. He's saying, I know your history. I know your sins. I know your status. You're Sarah's handmaid. Notice he describes her not what she wants to be, but what she actually is. So he found her, he knows her, and then thirdly, he questions her. Where have you come from? Where are you going? And, and these questions are not for his benefit. He knows fine well where she's come from and where he's, she's going, but he wants her to articulate it. Because the fact is she's come from, she's fleeing from the place of true religion in the world. She's fleeing from blessing. She's fleeing from God's promises. And where's she going? To Egypt, to death, to destruction. He wants her to face up to this. This is his skillful dealings with her. And in many ways, these are the two ultimate questions for any sinner, aren't they? Where have you come from? And where are you going? And then fourthly, he challenges Hagar. Verse 9, he says, return to your mistress. And this is really a divine call to repent. I mean, again, this, I think, shows how this is a divine figure, no mere man. I mean, if this was just a mere man, a stranger who met her at the well, she would never obey that. But she obeys this, because it's a divine call to repent. As one commentator said, it was grace that sought her, but righteousness that counseled her. And then fifthly, he encourages Hagar. In verses 10 through 12, he promises her a multiplication of offspring, and one in particular who will be called Ishmael, which literally means God hears. And what a rebuke that name would be to Abraham and Sarah. So, that's what this angel does. He finds her, knows her, questions her, challenges her, encourages her. How then does she respond? Well, we read, 
Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Beer Lahairoi. Now, this, this, this is difficult Hebrew to translate, but it can have two possible meanings. First of all, it could mean simply, God sees me. You're the God who sees me. In that case, Beer Lahairoi means the well of the living one who sees me. Now, if that's the right translation and interpretation, this is actually the first personal prayer that's recorded in the Bible. And again, it's amazing. It occurs on the lips of an immoral Egyptian outcast slave. And, you know, the thing that I just love so much about this passage is the way it reminds me of how the Son of God also dealt with another immoral woman at another well in another desert. You remember John 4 and the woman of Samaria. Remember the way he found her, knew her, questioned her, challenged her, encouraged her, and provoked the response. So similar to Hagar's. Come, see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Hagar sees you're the God who sees me. It's the well of the living one who sees me. It's amazing the parallels with John 4. It's almost as if Genesis 16 is like a dress rehearsal for John 4. But this, this verse can have another meaning. Not just God sees me, but I have seen God. You can literally translate this, you are the God of my seeing. In other words, I've seen the God who sees me. I've seen the God who sees me. Beer Lahairoi can be translated the well of the living sight. In other words, she's saying, I saw God and lived. She's saying, have I really seen the one who sees me and I'm still alive? Or maybe this, I've seen the one who sees me and I've been given life. I saw and lived is the well of the living sight, a sight, a look that brought life. I believe here we are reading of Hagar's conversion. Although later on in the New Testament, Paul uses uh, the time before this in Hagar's life to illustrate uh, Sinai and law and works religion, <laughs> here she's being converted from all human effort and human wisdom. And I think we see that by her putting her repentance and faith into action, by returning to Abraham and Sarah, where there seems to have, at least for a time, been some repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, and acceptance. It's beautiful, isn't it? Now, let me just say in conclusion about these appearances. Um, remember we asked the question, what was the Son of God doing in the Old Testament? Well, these appearances, at least 20, some people have counted up to 50, I think probably you could say 20 certain appearances of Christ as the angel of the Lord. But yet there are others that are more debatable. 
But even if it's only 20, they reveal constant activity. As the angel of the Lord, the messenger of God, Christ was continually at work throughout the Old Testament. As the word of God, he was bringing messages of grace to his needy people. And that's the second general point. These appearances are in response to needs. It's, it doesn't just appear here and there and everywhere. It's always to address specific needs and to accomplish special redemptive tasks. And thirdly, these appearances communicate grace. <laughs> the son's desire to communicate grace is so evident in these appearances. In that sense, they prepared the church for Christ and Christ for his church. They prepared the church for Christ. They prepared the church to uh, expect someone coming in some kind of humanity. And of course, ultimately it wasn't just human form as in the Old Testament, but real human flesh and blood. But they also prepared Christ for his church. These appearances have been portrayed as sort of expressions of holy impatience. It's sort of an insight into his earnest desire to be involved with the sons of men. As the old Christians in the Scottish Highlands used to say to me, Christ enjoyed trying on the clothes of his incarnation. <laughs> what delicious appetizers of his great gospel work when he would no longer be simply God manifest in human form, but God manifest in human flesh. Why not go and read some other accounts of the angel of the Lord and find these bonus gospels in the Old Testament? So, leave me some feedback on my blog. Leave a question or leave a quote. And I'll see what I can use in the following podcast. I look forward to hearing from you. And I look forward to meeting you all again next week.